Welcome to another episode of Running on Optimism, the podcast for amateur runners, or really anyone, channeling their inspiration to face challenges in running and life. I'm your host, Sonia Rita. In today's episode, I talk with Jeffrey James Binney, ultramarathoner, comedian, and actor whose documentary film, Once is Enough, chronicles his journey to his first 100-mile race, which also happens to be one of the most difficult, the Leadville Trail 100. There is a spoiler in the show, so you may want to pause right now, watch the movie, and then come back to this episode, or not. But either way, Once is Enough is a must-watch. We watched, my husband and I watched your documentary, uh, the beginning of the pandemic, but uh, we're watching yours and we were pulled in by your sense of humor. But what really resonated with me was, so we, we watched this around like April of 2020. Um, my dad had just had his second stroke um, mm-hmm. that January. We were in Cancun uh, celebrating a milestone for Izzy. And uh, it was all very fun. And then my dad had a stroke on our last day in Cancun and it was the second stroke a couple of years after he had had a heart attack. Um, and, you know, I've been running for, for years now and, and running in honor of Izzy, but part of what keeps me running is in some ways I am trying to outrun genetics. So again, I was pulled in by your humor but the details is what really kind of stuck with me and, and kept me in and watching and then crying. I'm about to cry because I remember, <laughs> I remember the movie and I remember seeing you and like, it was very, very heartfelt. And, and so I just want you to share your running journey um, with, with everyone. Yeah. Well, um, you know, if you're, if you're new to me, um, I grew up in the Midwest on a pig farm, uh, overweight little kid, not, not a, like definitely an indoor kid. Um, I was forced to play some sports, but I was not athletic. I was always a a big kid, but I was super drawn to the arts and I moved to New York and and did theater, uh, but was always, you know, fluctuating between 300, 350 pounds. I, the only real physical activity that I thought I enjoyed was um, dancing (laughs) as a musical theater major and then an actor. Uh, I'm what they call a mover. Mm -hmm. (laughs) And that's, um, that's a nice way to say, uh, you know, a bigger person who can kind of dance, but we're not going to like be putting them uh, in anything at the Met, you know, right now. And I, uh, things were going well. I was kind of transitioning to, to stand up. And my mom, who had been diagnosed with heart disease when I was 11, um, kind of started to decline rather quickly. Uh, I was about to turn 30. Um, and, you know, the doctors had, when she was first diagnosed, had really not given her a very good prognosis. I was a little kid, so all the details are a little fuzzy, but I think they had given her, you know, two or three years was was kind of the estimate. Heart failure was the issue, and it was, um, they didn't notice it until it was pretty, pretty severe. But she managed 17 more years. Um, but eventually she was having a surgery that we knew was kind of risky, and uh, it didn't, you know, did not go as planned. So she spent the last few months of her life in the ICU, and I came back from New York and, and, and stayed with my family and essentially lived on the waiting room floor of the hospital for those few months. But the hospital had subscriptions to what I thought were some pretty obscure magazines. Uh, <laughs> among them was Trail Running Magazine. Um, and I just kept picking it up uh, while I was wasting time and reading, reading articles. And, you know, this was at a time when I had started to go a little stir crazy in New York. I never considered myself an outdoor person, but um, being in New York that long, I slowly started to realize, I I went cycling once and I liked it like a little too much. And I realized that I just uh, was maybe a little, I needed to be outside more. And then I looked back at my childhood and realized that like I say I wasn't an outdoor kid, but I mean, I was outside all day. I grew up on on a farm. And, you know, even though I wasn't, you know, hiking or, you know, doing anything like that or crazy sports. I was outside all day. So on a particularly bad hospital day, we'd gotten some rough news. I picked up, again, that Trail Runner magazine and 
I just decided to go. <laughs> I went to a shoe store, bought some shoes, uh, went and found a trail and started running and was instantly hooked. I There are two really notable memories from that first run. The first thing is I felt like a little kid playing. I was jumping over logs. I was, you know, dodging limbs. It felt so playful and silly. Um, I guess there's three things really. Number two, uh, nobody was watching me. You know, to me running was PE class once a year with my PE teacher and his stopwatch making us do the mile for the presidential physical fitness test or whatever that thing was we had to do. And me trying to walk as much of it as I could without getting in trouble for having a bad attitude and not participating. <laughs> that was running to me. That's, that's what I knew is running. And suddenly here I was in the woods playing. Uh, no one was watching me. No one was watching my fat jiggle. No one was timing me. No one cared how far I ran, how fast I did it, what I looked like. And suddenly like I realized that running could be something totally different than, than what I thought it was. And then I think the most important thing that I instantly realized on that run was that I totally forgot about the day. I totally forgot about the problems and life for a very brief amount of time, but there weren't, I can't think of very many things uh, that are legal <laughs> that could have made me forget <laughs> what was happening in my life that day. Um, and so I was, I was, I was hooked pretty instantly. Um, this was uh, a couple months into her ICU stay, and I tend to go from zero to 130 percent. So I signed up for a 20 mile trail run, and I started training for it. Um, and I had trained for about a month uh, before she ended up uh, passing away, unfortunately, and I wasn't going to do the race. Um, it was a few weeks after she had passed away. Um, but I decided to do it anyway. I wasn't ready for it, but I did it anyway. It was in February in Missouri. I had no clue what I was doing. I, the, the water in my hydration tube froze in the middle of the race. And somebody was like, well, dude, you got to put it in your shirt. I didn't know that. <laughs> I didn't know. I had no clue. It was super muddy. And I wore those Vibram five finger, like neoprene yeah. toe shoes. They're super comfortable. I love them, but are they the right shoes for a super muddy 20 mile trail run in Missouri in February? No, they're not. <laughs> they are not the right shoes. Um, but I did it and somehow I finished it. And that's, that's the not so short story of, you know, how I got into doing this, this silly thing that we all do where we go to the middle of nowhere and, <laughs> and run too far. So do you think that it would have been um, a different running journey had you picked up Runner's World or Intro to 5Ks? Was it, was oh, it totally. like the trail running that got you or running? It was definitely the trail running. It was the sense of, um, and I'm not, no, you know, no shade to the road running community, but what attracted me was definitely the sense of adventure, the being in the middle of nowhere, um, I, I loved that. And then also the, the vibe of the trail running community, um, well, you know, no better or worse, uh, is more attractive to me. It's funky. It's weird. Um, you know, they're fireball shots at the aid stations. Not that I'm saying we need to be drinking while <laughs> running, but you know what I mean? It's just this, like this hyper accepting, funky, weird, quirky, group of people. And it's also one of the few communities that I feel like has such a strong identity, you know, I mean, you can make some assumptions about, you know, I don't know, river rafters or stuff like this, but I feel like the trail running community, like, I feel like almost everyone who's silly enough to get into it is we're kind of of the same breed, I think. Um, so I, that really attracted me to, um, and then ultra marathons were, pretty immediately attractive because of the switch in goals. The goal, well, the people who are winning ultra marathons, their goal is to be fast. But for the vast majority of ultra runners, the goal is 
Sure, if you can do it quickly or more quickly than last time, that's great. But it's survival. It's finish. It's can you finish? Can you get across the finish line? And that switch in goals was also super attractive for me. Totally clicked with me. Now that's like something I'll never be fast because I'll never be fast. And that feels totally helpless to me. Like, why would I even try? Not that I'm saying we shouldn't try hard things, but I think we also have to have some self-awareness. I'm probably not going to be winning the New York City Marathon anytime soon. Uh, but can I go to Texas and run a 100-mile ultramarathon in the woods and get it done? Who knows how long it'll take, but can I finish? Yeah, it turns out I can. Uh, that's just mind-blowing to 12-year-old Jeffrey. There are so many things right now. I feel I, my friends have to be getting sick of it, but I feel like in the last few months, over and over again, I've said 12-year-old Jeffrey's mind is just blown right now <laughs> if I could go tell him what where he was going to be <laughs> he wouldn't believe it yeah yeah 12 year old Jeffrey uh dreaming of musical theater and probably a very different kind of lifestyle yeah absolutely and uh it's come up in conversation a lot lately because weirdly I'm kind of I've taken this you know weird detour out of the entertainment world into uh, ultra running and backpacking and fast packing world. Um, you know, I've, I've created the film. I've still been doing creative things, but really went out on that detour. But now I seem to be coming back to that, that, uh, you know, the way that things started because now most people know me for dancing in the desert or in the mountains. And it's so silly. That's, that's what I literally just yesterday, I said, you know, 12 year old Jeffrey was in the yard with his sister's color guard rifle, which is like the marching band, like the fake guns mm -hmm. the color guard uses. I was obsessed with those when I was a little kid. I was actually like pretty bonkers with it, pretty good with it. Uh, you know, doing shows in the front yard. I loved, I love the 4th of July, mostly because I could buy fireworks and smoke bombs and things. And I could <laughs> pretend like I had smoke machines and do like, you know, put on performances in the front yard. I mean, I was so over the top when I was a little kid. Um, and, you know, the other day I was, I was working on an idea for a video where I'm dancing. It's a ridiculous dance in the desert. And I got this little magician's fireball launcher that goes in the, it hides in the palm of your hand and it shoots fireballs oh, out wow. of your hand. And I was like, this is, I wish I could go tell 12 year old Jeffrey, like, Hey, just hold on at some point companies are going to pay you money <laughs> in the desert and dance and play with fire and film it like <laughs> what you know he never would have uh, assumed that would be where he would end up but I know that he would have been like oh okay that sounds really cool can't wait for that <laughs> so this is worth it this is this is all worth it have you done um a video I haven't seen anything with the actual like with your flags and like the color guard in the middle no, of the desert? No, oh, I haven't touched a rifle in ages, but I should. That's a good idea. I think so. I yeah. think so. I think that would, one, it'd be entirely random. And that's yeah. part of what makes it, would make it so interesting. Yeah. I yeah, have, I um, I've constantly have told people um, that, uh, you know, whenever the question comes up of like, what's your dream job or like your dream show or whatever. Um, and I think because, my skills mostly for musical theater are so random. I mean, you know, I'm a, a decent actor, a decent singer. I can dance okay, but I have all these, I've picked up all these random skills like color guard skills or tap dancing. I'm actually, well, I don't know anymore. I used to be like a kind of decent tap dancer. And uh, yeah, I think I've got to start pulling all of those skills out because even like I did a silly, um, <clears throat> there's a karaoke app and, um, you know the song Poor Unfortunate Souls? Yeah. Oh, Bundy? I saw it the other day. Oh. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. One day I had just had a couple beers and I was like, I should record myself singing Poor Unfortunate Souls as Ursula. I've always thought, I was like, why has like a large effeminate gay man never played Ursula? <laughs> <laughs> Uh, so I, I made that and posted it and I it got a much better reaction than I expected, not because it was a brilliant performance, but I think it's just because, you know, everyone knows me as either a runner or, you know, sometimes someone who does comedy. And I think, you know, they, it, they weren't expecting me to, you know, 
be able to halfway decent sing. <laughs> um, yeah, I have to I have to pull it up again. Izzy is actually um, performing in a local theater. Uh, Little Mermaid Junior. She's part of the ensemble, which she's actually really sweet about it. She's like, um, you know, like the lead roles are great, but ensemble gets to be in every song. So I'm on stage more than Ariel. <laughs> yeah, 100%. That is a really mature perspective of her because she's 100% correct. And there are uh, so many shows, like Ragtime is a great example. I don't know if you know that musical. Um, Titanic is another example where I think my preferred role would be the ensemble um, because like all I'm a tenor and all of the tenor lines in all of the ensemble stuff in ragtime is so fun to sing um, and you get to sing you know all different styles because of the three ethnic groups and so you um, uh, yeah she's she's spot on you've got a, a smarty. I definitely do I definitely definitely do um, so to date, how many ultras have you done and what is your longest? Longest is hundred miler. I've attempted three and only finished one, um, which only, is, only uh, finished uh, one. Only. Yeah. Well, I mean, I, uh, my, um, like stomach churns, as I say that I've attempted three and finished one, but I, uh, my instinct is to not say that. Yeah. <laughs> But I think it's important to say it because I think it's important to show the reality of what this is like. And, um, you know, I think no matter how many ultra runners who are new to it, no matter how many facts you spew at them, like, oh, hey, you know, only 42% of people finish Leadville, only this, you know, you know that in your head, but uh, maybe because you have to for your own mental sanity, you don't really accept that. And you assume, you know, that you're going to finish um, and you probably have to go into it that way. Um, but I think it's important to talk about it because I think if there's one thing that I want to uh, give out uh, on social media and everything that I'm doing <clears throat> is I think everyone could use a reminder to have fun outdoors. It's so easy to take things too seriously and obsess over how fast you were, how far you went, or what happened with your nutrition, or this drop bag wasn't where it needed to be. Those things are important. You always want to be improving. You want to have the satisfaction of, of getting better and faster, but it's also really important to have fun. Like, it's gorgeous. You're healthy. You're, you know, you have so many things to be grateful for. And it's just easy to kind of take any, any part of life. It's easy to kind of get caught up in the not important things and end up missing the really important things. So, you know, that's what I want my, my vibe to be about. That's where the silly dance videos came from. Um, Cause I just felt like people could use a reminder to, to have a little fun while they're out there. Yeah. Like you're uh, the one about the, um, the other day, the negative talk of what, how does it go? <laughs> yeah. what, how does it go? I forget. I've seen it on TikTok like a thousand times and now I can't think of how it goes. Uh, is it the toxic person one? Yes, toxic person. Yeah. <laughs> it's Pamela Pupkin. Uh, it's some audio from one of those videos and she's like, see that toxic person? That's we're right. walking the other way. <laughs> that's right. That that's toxic right. person? Yeah, we're walking the other way. <laughs> yes. So like exactly that is the vibe that you put out in, in that reel. So where do you think you get this perspective from? Like, where did, I mean, have you always been a very, um, you seem very self-aware, self-assured. Have you always been this person? Has running helped kind of build that? Has your experience with your mom helped that? Like, where does it all come from? Yeah, I think it's a few things. I mean, I think first and foremost, I had, you know, we talked about this earlier. I had just like blindly supportive parents. Um, I remember one time in college, a friend was kind of upset after a show and I finally found out that his parents had come to see the show and his mom afterward had said something to the effect of like, oh, you know, great show, honey. Like it, it wasn't your best, but we still really enjoyed it. And I just like had a realization that like, oh my God, <laughs> like my parents, my mom would never, ever, ever, I could take a, a crap on stage. <laughs> she would have been calling the newspapers, making sure that they had a chance to review it. Like <laughs> she had address return labels made <laughs> that said, uh, remember back when we used to actually physically mail things? Mm -hmm. um, she had address return labels that said, Deb Binney, Jeffrey Binney fan club president, 
536 <laughs> with her address. Um, so number one, I think just having like really blindly supportive parents, reasonably blindly supportive. I mean, it wasn't, you know, you should, you should take calculated risks is, is I think what the, the vibe was. So I think that's the first reason. I think the second thing is I'm generally kind of aloof. Um, I think I probably got bullied more than I realized when I was a little kid, but I was lucky enough just to not notice or not care. I really kind of lived in my own little world. Um, so I think that's the second thing. Um, and then I think, you know, the third thing, um, I'm uh, like mostly straight presenting white male. So, you know, uh, a lot of confidence and opportunities and things, you know, that's, that's, that's what comes with that. So I think I have the, you know, the luxury of, of having that white man confidence um, and, you know, not to, not to get political or anything, but that's something that I think is really important to talk about, especially in the running community, the trail running community could not possibly be a more funky, diverse, uh, inclusive place, but there's still, still progress to be made. Um, there's not enough women, people of color. Um, there's just, there's, there's not enough diversity at the starting lines that I'm at at least. <laughs> I really, again, I, I don't, I don't get political to me. It just seems like truths, right? Like you're, you're giving your observations. Um, I realize my position as a um, as a white Latina. I've been that bilingual colleague, that bilingual hire, that bilingual, you know, that that yep. checks the box while also presenting as white. So um, to me, it's not political. To me, it's my truth, what I've what I've lived and what I realize. So I really appreciate. Yeah, well, I mean, I think like, you know, I'm easy for people to swallow, so to, so to speak. Uh, I'm, you know, they can kind of forget if they have problems with any component about me, like being gay, they can, they can kind of ignore it because um, it's one of many components of my life. It's not something that I'm in people's face about um, and people can forget about it unless I talk about it because, you know. I'm not doing drag, which I, there's certainly nothing wrong with doing drag. I would love to do drag, but I, you know, I'm just not, I'm just not in people's faces. And so I think that's why, um, uh, I think that's why people probably, probably treat me different. Um, it's so interesting to see, you know, people's perspectives and how they get treated. My husband is, um, beautiful. <laughs> I hope he doesn't hear this. He'll be mortified, but he's like, you know, he's a model and he's just stunning. And it's just so interesting, like we have so many observations between the two of us of just how we get treated differently. Um, not necessarily me being treated bad because I'm not, you know, a quote unquote model or stereotypical whatever, um, but we have different experiences sometimes with the same people. Um, and it's hard not to, you know, wonder <clears throat> if, or at least to what degree that is in, is in play. Yeah, like a very objective observation. Like it's not going to make you feel bad. You're just like, oh, well, look at that, right? Yeah, yeah. Well, and it's hard not to, you know, it's hard not to wonder. I mean, it's for any marginalized community when something happens that you're not sure is fair. It's really difficult to not. I mean, how can you not say, well, was it because of this? Was it because of my skin color? Was it because of my religion? Was it because you, you, you know, you, you don't know, and it's impossible not to wonder. But it would be great to live in a world where we didn't have to wonder, but. But I think talking about it definitely, um, talking about it definitely takes it to another level. And I think. Um, yeah, we at least have to get the conversation started. I mean, <clears throat> nobody with bad intentions has ever disagreed with me, but I think, you know, a lot of people will say, oh no, that's not true that the real trail running community could be more diverse. Like, you know, I have, I have a black friend who, who runs or, um, you know, I was at a starting line and there's this like group of three, you know, indigenous uh, runners. Like, I don't know what you're talking about. It's like, well, cool. Well, tell me about the race starting line you were at <clears throat> where you were in the minority, where most people weren't, weren't white. Mm -hmm. Tell me about that race. Does that exist? <laughs> yeah. Uh, I had a real, like, uh, I don't know, this, I will remember this moment in my mind forever. I had just moved to New York, fresh off the pig farm in Missouri. I went to college in Missouri. So I was fresh off the farm 
And I got a job teaching an after-school program, teaching theater in an after-school program in Far Rockaway. And I had to take like two trains and two buses to get there. But I remember the first time I was going there and I got off the bus way out in Queens um, to transfer to another bus. And I was just chilling at the bus stop on my phone and I happened to look up and it was a really busy intersection with tons of people on the streets. And I couldn't, I didn't see another white person. Everyone was mostly black or of color. And it sounds so silly. It's kind of like, oh my God, this is the cutest little like silly white boy experience you had. But it was the first time I had ever been someplace where I was the only white person. And I remember it like so vividly. And I immediately was like, oh my gosh, like this is how my friends of color feel <laughs> everywhere they go. And it was, I didn't like it. It wasn't comfortable. There was no reason for me to be uncomfortable. Like that's a lot of things to unpack, but it was mm -hmm. uncomfortable. And I had never had that experience before. But we're kind of getting off topic. But the whole point is, if you're saying the trail running community is super inclusive, you are absolutely correct. But I think it's also correct that we could, could keep going. I love it. I, I just, all of it. I'm just, you're right. Leave it at that because I think that experience is so valuable. I think it's a growing process. Like I, there are things, ten, I've learned a lot in 10, 10 years. Like it's okay to say like, hey, you were wrong. Like, oh yeah, you're right. That was, that was really insensitive. Um, mm -hmm. And now I know, and now I'm growing. It's okay to say, um, you're right. <laughs> you're right. I could change. I could do better. It's okay to say that. We don't have to be so staunch in our, no, that's not true. Or yeah. no, that's not what I meant. Like, just let's evolve. We can all keep growing. Yeah. I think, um, you know, I'm growing and then, you know, is as, as a parent, I try to be a better person because I want her to be a good person. When people ask what age would you like to go back to? I don't know, like maybe like five or six years old was really cool. But after that, like, I feel like I, I just feel like I keep getting better and better. <laughs> and I don't know that I want to go, not that I was unhappy with him or regret anything, but I don't know that I want to, I don't know that I want to be 24 year old Jeffrey again. He was fine, but I don't know. He was kind of, kind of a twerp also, you know? <laughs> yeah. I feel like you and I should have been friends like long before this because we're like, I'm the same. I am the same. Like, I don't mind getting old. I find new grays every day is actually like comb through my hair. And she's like, oh, here's one. Here's one. And she's like, oh my God, this is a big clump of them. I'm like, oh, awesome. I want to know. <laughs> and I just want to keep growing in confidence knowing that, you know, my my age, my wrinkles, my crow's feet, whatever it is, it has nothing to do with the kind of person I am and that I am actually like fine wine. <laughs> yeah, well, 100%. And I think, you know, that's that's been the case with my running journey too. Like I look at the time, you know, when I first started running and I, uh, I didn't, I mean, I enjoyed it, but I didn't make the most of it. I spent so much time stressing about like, oh, I don't feel like running today and missing that run. And like, well, I'm never going to be successful at my hundred miler because I missed that run. Well, that's absolutely ludicrous. Like what a silly idea, you know? And I just, I remember like not being able to sleep because I was worried about cutoff times and things. And, you know, again, like not to say that we can just waltz out there and not care about things, but I feel like it's taken me some time to realize why I'm really out there doing it and what's really important about being out there and doing it. And, you know, if you're a pro runner, then things are different mm -hmm. um, when it comes to time. Um, everyone should have, I've already said this, everyone should always have goals. I'm not saying not to have goals and not to like, you know, try to grow and whatnot, but I just see so many people who, you know, I, I don't know, I've had friends who have, you know, cried on, on runs and things because they didn't get to the summit they wanted to get to, or they missed the time that they wanted to hit, or it's like, gosh, really look where you are. Like mm -hmm. we're at 10,000 feet. Like oh, it's disappointing, but oh, enjoy this. You know, we gotta, you gotta enjoy it. And enjoy the, so one thing that I've been seeing more too, as I talk to more coaches and more people in running, um, not just enjoy the race, enjoy the journey to that race. Like enjoy the training, the work you put into it. And that race is actually like the final product. That's your sauce. And everything going into it was all the ingredients to get that fine sauce. 
Yeah, especially for ultra runners, you have to look at it that way because the final run is, you know, probably less than 5% of the miles you ran while you were leaping up to it. It's going to be an amazing day, chocked full of memories. You're never going to forget it. But don't forget all those crazy things that happened that, you know, year, 16 months that you spent uh, training, like that's where the, that's where the growth happened. That's where, you know, the magic was, was happening. That's where you were changing. That's where it was probably the hardest, you know, I mean, that's where, like you said, that's where the, the meat comes from. The race is just, oh, here's this final little cherry on top. And if you don't get the cherry on top, it's not the end of the world. That's the whole context under which, like, I'm usually talking about this is people who, are, you know, got DNF'd, didn't finish an ultra marathon, and they talk about it like all, all is lost, like the whole, you know, everything was pointless. It's like, gosh, I really, it's disappointing, of course, but it's such a small component of this journey that you've been on. I understand you'd love to have a cherry on top of your Sunday, but you have the Sunday. You spent a year building the Sunday. Um, perspective, I think, yeah. can make people a little more uh, accepting and and kind. I think everyone, uh, especially runners, um, I think we could all use a good dose of being kinder to ourselves. I see so pe- so many people not see, what's the saying? See the... Oh, the forest for the trees? Yes, thank you. <laughs> yeah, glad you knew what I was saying because that was not even, I wasn't coming anywhere close to that. <laughs> I was on like bushes and stars and I'm like, no, that's not it. <laughs> see the hedges for the houses? Yeah, something like that. <laughs> That's where I was going. Well, I had I was talking to someone um, a few podcasts ago. Actually, maybe I think I, w- I was being interviewed. And the one thing that I've learned that I've heard, again, from other coaches is your inner voice should be the same as your outer voice for a friend. So you should be talking to yourself as you would a friend. Would you tell your friend that they suck? No, you wouldn't say that to a friend who's trying to reach a goal. So don't, don't talk to yourself that way. And I try really hard. Um, actually I've gotten pretty good at it. Like I just like, it, it matters less. I keep getting injured. So when I can accomplish something, I'm like, well, you didn't get injured. Super. <laughs> yeah. I, um, I think that's so common though. I think everyone is their, their harshest critic. You know, I feel like there's nothing you could say to somebody, well, not always, but I feel like so often, you know, there's nothing you could say to somebody that is worse than what they're saying to themselves. And I think that can help you be a little more empathetic and a little more kind uh, when dealing with with critics. Um, You know, I mean, well, the entertainment world, I... sometimes people comment on my response to like trolls and stuff on Instagram because um, I usually fight with with, uh, with kindness um, because I have been, whoops, you might have to edit that out. Sorry, I've got beeping. <laughs> <laughs> um, and that distracted me. What was I even saying? Um, you have been um, all about uh, responding to negative ki- comments, kill them with kindness. Oh, I mean, I've been, that is the world of an actor. We, our job is to go to audition after audition and nine out of 10 times, if we're lucky, we don't ever get a job offer. So we, you have to get, and some people never do, but uh, it's pretty magical if you can get to a place where you can accept rejection. Um, and it not destroy you. Uh, and that's easy, you know, easier said than done. Um, but I think any actor, <laughs> if they've been in the business, if they've survived more than like eight or 10 years, um, they have gotten at least somewhat uh, skilled at taking uh, rejection. And also criticism. I think it's so fascinating when I have actor friends who say, oh, I don't read reviews. I never read reviews. And I do understand some of their their points um, for for not reading reviews, but I swing the absolute opposite way. I think as actors are, uh, or comedians or any 
kind of creative person, your success depends on what other people think of your art. And I don't, not saying that you should create art to be liked uh, for, the, for the sake of, of people liking it, but if you want to have a sustainable career, if you want to make money with your art, uh, you do have to be at least somewhat conscious of it. Nobody's harder on you than yourself. I think that's the whole point of what I was saying. Yeah, definitely, definitely. We are our own worst critics. Um, we just have to, I guess, condition ourselves and it's practice. It's practice all the time, condition ourselves to stop being so hard on ourselves. We're like, um, I have a really funny magnet and it's a dandelion with like all the like floofs flying away. And it says, these are all, these are the last of all my Fs, but it doesn't say Fs, it actually spelled. <laughs> I have it up on the fridge and I'm like, it's so perfect. Those are all the last of my remaining Fs flying away. Yeah, yeah, I've got no more to give. <laughs> all done. <laughs> That's funny. <laughs> So tell me about your, your very first completed ultra. So did you, wait, did you complete that 20 miler? Uh, yeah, so I completed okay. that 20 miler. Just, I have a real knack for rolling across the finish line minutes, if not seconds before the cutoff time. Um, but I finished that 20 miler. Um, and then I did a handful of 50, uh, 50 Ks and I, uh, in the process, ended up moving from New York to California and I decided to try, I had the idea for a hundred miler. I was like, oh, can I ever do that? I started diving into it and was becoming kind of obsessed with researching online and I watched all the films uh, about ultra marathons. Um, and I kind of censored myself and I was like, let's not get out of control. Let's sign up for a 50 miler and use that as a litmus test. And if that goes well, then let's think about doing something as crazy as a hundred miler. So I signed up for the 50 mile North Face Endurance Challenge. It's in the Marin Headlands, which is uh, just North of San Francisco. It's absolutely beautiful along the ocean. Um, so I did that and again, completed it just, <laughs> just in the nick of time. And I can't say it, it went well, but I finished it and I still wanted to do a hundred after. So uh, I signed up for a hundred miler, um, not immediately. I, I had the idea for the film around that time. I, I, I didn't really mention this component, but I, when I was living in New York, I kind of got burned out of musical theater and I transitioned to doing more stand-up. And then uh, when I had moved to, to California, um, I was just getting tired of auditioning for other people's projects. I mean, I was constantly auditioning, like begging other people to let me be in their, their project, you know? Um, and I decided, why don't I just make my own work? Why am I not creating my own work? Why am I <laughs> running around desperate to be in other people's projects? So I uh, had the idea for the film. Like, what if I ran a hundred mile ultra marathon, filmed uh, the training and the process of the run, and then wrote my first hour uh, stand-up storytelling show about the whole experience. We filmed that, and then we juxtaposed those things together in some sort of half documentary, half stand-up storytelling thing. Um, and so I had the idea for the film, but I knew that I couldn't do it by myself. So I uh, brought on a trainer, Ian Sharman, who is, you know, the best of the best. Um, and he helped me settle on a first ultra marathon. I was dead set um, on uh, like a big run, like Western States, mm -hmm. Leadville, Hard Rock, something like that. Um, and so we decided to go with the Leadville 100, um, primarily because it, uh, at the time at least, I don't know if it does now, uh, at the time it didn't require qualifying time. So a lot of the bigger 100 milers that are more popular, uh, you have to have completed a qualifying 100 miler or 50 miler or 100K in the year prior. Um, and Leadville didn't require that. So that's, that's how we chose Leadville. Um, and, uh, you know, spoiler alert, if you haven't seen the film yet, we're about to ruin it. So stop this podcast, go watch the film, and then come back. Um, but Leadville didn't go as planned. Um, 
I missed the time cutoff at the mile 45, 46 aid station and, you know, got pulled from the race. Um, pretty, pretty devastating. Looking back, it's a little, well, I say it's a little silly to think about how upset I was about it, but it's not. It makes sense that I would be upset. The weird thing was, you know, I wasn't as uh, upset about getting pulled from the race because I really shocked myself by the fact that I, I was good. I mean, I was, I had run 46 miles. So maybe saying I'm, I was good is an overstatement, but I could have kept going. I wanted to keep going. And that, that blew my mind. Um, that, that in itself was an accomplishment to me. Like mm -hmm. I took a lot of solace in the fact that I didn't quit. I, I had to stop. Um, but what really stunk was all the other stuff. The fact that like my friends and family had traveled, you know, literally across the continent to come help me do this. They'd, you know, spent time and money. We had spent, you know, a lot of money to travel the film crew to Colorado. And we were there for five days beforehand shooting stuff. Um, and that was the stuff that was hardest for me to accept. You know, I had made, we were trying to promote the film. So I had made such a to-do on, on social media about this, this thing that I was doing. I had like a live tracker set up so that people could follow my GPS signal throughout the race. Like I had just really shouted it from the rooftops. And that was the hard part of that failure. I was okay with myself. But that's the stuff that really bothered me and embarrassed me and, you know, all those, all those things. So I, it took a while. I wasn't excited about it immediately, but I decided to do, to attempt another one. And uh, we decided on the Rocky Raccoon, which is in Texas, um, obviously more flat because it's not in the Rocky Mountains, but, you know, still a hundred miles nonetheless. And... For that one, I didn't tell anybody. I told my sister and a friend who came to crew for me and I paired the film crew down to one person. That poor guy, he literally did all the jobs. He was the sound guy. <laughs> he was a camera operator. He was a producer. He was everything. Um, because I didn't want to deal with that again. I didn't want to deal with having to tell everyone that I failed. Um, and then when I didn't fail and I finished successfully, I... Got so it was so much fun to get on social media the next morning and say, Hey, y'all, you will never believe what I did yesterday. And then I attempted another one. I, the Wasatch 100 is a 100 miler in the Wasatch Mountains here uh, near Salt Lake City. And for that one, I wasn't ready for it, but they have a compounding lottery. So if you don't get in one year and you enter the next year, you get double the entries. Okay. And if you don't get in that year, the next year you get double the entries. So you keep increasing your odds exponentially every time you enter the lottery. So I entered thinking, oh, this would be awesome to do in like two or three years. Like, so let's <laughs> enter this year and maybe I'll get in uh, in a few years. And of course, <laughs> I got in the first year um, and I was like, well, I have to, I have to do it. Like I, I, I have to train and I've already paid for it. Like, let's go. Um, same thing happened. It was mile 51 or 52. Uh, I missed the time cutoff. That time it was by less than a minute. Oh. They actually let me go through the aid station. Um, and then after I had left the aid station, they realized that I was just under. And so they made my crew like go, go get me and, and pull me. Um, but I told myself after that one, no more, <laughs> no more mountain ultras until my uh, weight is where I want it to be. And that may never be, I'm not, to be clear, I'm not obsessing about getting my weight down so that I can do it. I'll run what I wanna run, when I wanna run at the volume I wanna run. Um, and if I am at that weight at some point, then I will sign up for another 100 ultra, uh, mountain ultra. Um, but it's just, it's just uh, physics. I mean, <laughs> when you have that much weight, those mountain ultras, um, it's just really difficult to keep your pace you know, fast enough to beat those cutoff times when you're carrying extra weight. Um, so I've, I've, um, I've sworn off the mountain hundred milers until that happens, but I'm really focused on making that happen right now. <laughs> um, 
but the goal, at least for me, the goal can't be to lose weight, but that never works for me. Like that, that will never work for me. Uh, my goal has to be, um, you know, uh, conquering a new trail that I've never been on or being able to run up a, a, a climb that, you know, I, I, I cannot run uphill, <laughs> um, but like making, making progress with that. Like those are the kinds of goals that I try to set for myself because I think they're a lot more uh, healthy and at least for me, lead me to be a lot more successful than when I dictate my running or anything else on what the scale says. That just doesn't, it doesn't motivate me. The scale also lies. I mean, it, it lies. <laughs> There's so many things that it can affect your weight temporarily. And it's so easy to obsess over what the scale said today uh, when we really need to be thinking about what did the scale say the last six weeks? <laughs> that, yeah. That's a more valuable, uh, valuable number than what it says today or this morning. There were people running marathons when I was sitting on the couch, perfectly thin, just because genetically that's how I'm made. There were people running marathons and I was very well aware that those bigger people running marathons were in better shape and better health than I was eating my Klondike bars, sitting on the couch, doing nothing. Um, so what does, what does weight mean to you and why don't you focus on weight as a goal? Well, this is one of the stickiest topics we could have dove into <laughs> because it's it's so complicated. It's uh, such a complicated discussion because um, we know that having less body fat is healthier. Um, but um, does that mean that that's true all of the time? Does that mean the scenario you just mentioned? um is is true uh no that's your example was the perfect illustration um more so uh i can't think of like any worse downward spiral cyclical way of thinking than oh i'm overweight so i shouldn't go run well, that's, it's, 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 it's the opposite, but you have to know that like, you still, you still might be overweight running. Ugh, here is a huge, huge bomb. I hate dropping to new runners because I don't want them to not run, but I'm also don't want their expectations to be out of whack. In my personal anecdotal experience, running is not always a great way to lose weight because so many things happen. You're expending more calories. You're more hungry. It's so easy to, to you know, then overconsume calories, um, not only because you're hungry, but because you just, you went for a 15 mile run. I can eat whatever I want. Well, not exactly. That's not totally how it works. And I see so many run new runners who get started and then are immediately disappointed because they think that the pounds are just going to drop off. And they may, but, you know, nutrition is, you know, the best kept secret in the fitness industry is that nutrition, I think, in my experience, is, is really where it's at, if that's the kind of progress that you're trying to make. But that doesn't mean that you're not getting stronger. It doesn't, I mean, that's a, that's a, going back to the scale. That's the best little, like, you know, uh, unavoidable FU the scale can send you is that you can be doing resistance training and you're going to gain weight. You might be losing body fat, but if you're gaining muscle, like you're gaining weight. And so there's a perfect example of how that scale will deceive you and derail you by presenting you with mistruths. Mm -hmm. <laughs> um, so I, 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 I don't know if I, I, I didn't answer the question. No, I mean, but I everything you said was poignant. Because, yeah, I mean, um, bigger runners, it doesn't mean they're not healthier than you. It doesn't mean that they, I mean, that's, I think, uh, something that I get so much satisfaction out of is seeing um, like more conventional athletes, you know, dudes who are like fit and thin and super fast 
um especially like high schoolers my nephews are in high school and like all their like friends are athletes and they're all lovely but I just like get so much satisfaction of being like okay like I know you're a really amazing sprinter but I know that I can run longer and further than you I can't do it faster than you but I know for a fact that I can run longer and further than you and that like going back to 12 year old Jeffrey like those like dudes in gym class that like he was intimidated by and looked up to, you know, all those things. Like if someone had said, well, hey, you just wait when you're 39, <laughs> get this. You're going to be able to run five times as far as they can. At um, least, yeah. Just different priorities. And I think, you know, finding priorities and goals that are right for you, your running style, your body type. I think that's what's important. I would have a very different running story if my goal had been to win runs. I, I wouldn't be doing it because mm -hmm. I would have immediately been unsuccessful and discouraged. And, um, <clears throat> you know, just how for me, I fell in love with ultra running because the goal was finishing instead of being fast. I think, you know, when you dive into something like this, like you just need to know your why. You need to know why you're doing it. What's your goal and what's fueling you to do it? I, I talk about this in my speaking engagements a lot, but, and it's not a new idea. I mean, we've all heard like, oh, what's your why? Why are you doing the thing? But I think it's no, I think there's nowhere it's more important than in uh, especially ultra running because there are times when it's so bad. It's not fun, you're in pain. You might quite frankly be in danger in the middle of the woods somewhere alone. Um, and there are so many great opportunities to quit. And sometimes you should, I mean, that's one of the many arts of ultra running is to figure out like, okay, is this a little twitch that's gonna go away in two miles or do I need to stop moving right now because I'm about to do serious irreversible damage to my body when we never master it. But um, I, oh, I just got off topic. I've totally spaced. Where were we going? <laughs> what was the question? Your why. <laughs> Oh, you're, you're right, right. So in those times, like if you don't have something really substantial to fuel you, um, you know, just like, oh, my friends do do runs and I want to like go run with them or, oh, I just think it'd be fun to, to lose a little weight or those kind of goals, like those, uh, those are a little flimsy, I think. Those don't hold up in those terrible times when, you know, any reasonable person would stop but if you want to achieve your ultra running goals, you need to keep going. Um, you know, and it's just, I feel so lucky that I had such a, um, I had a reason that was so connected to my core. Same for the film process. You know, everyone wants to talk about uh, what was it like to run a 100 mile ultra marathon, but you know, the filmmaking process is absolutely brutal and overwhelming and never ending and arguably that journey was the harder longer more difficult of the marathons <laughs> um but same with the film there were so many uh, opp opportunities to quit there's so many times i can think of at least four specific times that huge brick walls were put up in front of this film project moving forward and I didn't have the option to quit because the whole reason I was making the film, the whole reason I was running was to honor my mom. And I was just desperate to not end up in the same situation as her. And so it wasn't an option. Like I, the guilt that I would have felt for the rest of my life, if I had abandoned the project honoring my mother, like it wasn't even an option. And I can look back and really appreciate how lucky I was to have, to not have the option to quit. Not everyone has that luxury, but if you can find the reason, you know, not because you want to lose a few pounds, but because your son is so wants you to coach his soccer team and you can't, you know, you can't walk to the field, let alone play and coach with him. That's, that's a reason. Um, so I think it's, you know, there's always, a, there's always a deep substantial reason there. I think sometimes you just have to, you know, the, the, the first thing that comes to mind, like, is often just scratching the surface. Mm -hmm. I think you've got to dive deeper and know why you want to do whatever crazy thing you're trying to do. And you talk about your mom and, you know, having to finish the film because it honored your mom, but it's not 
it's not a guilt feeling. It's a, if I'm truly honoring this person that I love, then I'm going to do the hard thing because loving someone that deeply is hard. It's supposed to come from deep in your belly. Um, so I relate to that because the marathon was hard. It was painful. It sucked. I wanted to throw up. It just, it was awful and wonderful at the same time, but at no point was I not going to finish it because again, not because of guilt, but it was an honor of my little person who struggled so struggles every day so much. Um, every day is a battle for her and what the F I can, you know, run for five and a half hours and never even meet the challenges that she's already met. So I just wanted to share that anecdotally because I really, really get what you mean um, when you say yeah. you wanted to honor your mom. Yeah, I mean, that's that's exactly it. And it's not it's not guilt. It's, um, you know, there's it's, it's not that there's no scenario where I would have quit working on the film. Um, it's that I wasn't at the point where I knew I couldn't go any further. And that's why I couldn't quit, because I knew that if I quit, it was me quitting you know, being lazy or taking the, the easy route out. And that's, that's why I couldn't quit. Um, you know, there are a lot of, there are a lot of scenarios that we could have gotten to where it would have been foolish, financially mm -hmm. dangerous, you know, all kinds of other things to yeah. keep trying to produce the film. But if you know in your soul that you're not at that breaking point yet, like that's what keeps you from quitting when you have that why. Yep, that's, that's exactly it. Um, so I think my last question is, how does a pig farmer go vegan? Like, what was the catalyst <laughs> to go vegan? <laughs> well, I, 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 I've had, you know, ebbs and flows of vegetarian, vegan, plant-based-ism. Um, I, I, I really can't, I can only call myself plant-based right now because I, um I'm, I'm cheating with cheese occasionally that's that's my one kryptonite yes. so some cheese is slipping back into my diet um but you know i uh from the time i was a little kid um you know helping on the farm we were um it was primarily a pig farm but my dad also planted a lot of corn soy uh, wheat milo um which is a grain uh, in the summers. So there, there were, there were both components to the farm. And, uh, when I was a little kid, I hated helping with the pigs because it was always not fun stuff. Like it was never like, Oh, Hey, Jeffrey, can you come like help me play with the pigs? It was, <laughs> Hey, can you come help me like castrate 3000 pigs? Can you come help? You know, it was like always like really unenjoyable things, <clears throat> but I loved going with him to work in the field, like to, you know, ride in the combine, combine to harvest wheat or corn or whatever. I loved that component, but because I hated helping with the pigs so much, I like just ran in the opposite direction of farming. I never even briefly considered pursuing it. Um, and I think uh, you know, the hunting was a big component too. Hunting is huge in the Midwest. Um, a lot of the meat that I ate as a little kid was venison, was deer meat. We have lots of uh, deer uh, that are that are hunted during hunting season, and I never wanted to go. And it's like this is a very weird in rural Missouri to have a son who doesn't want to go hunting. Um, and what was interesting was I loved the like component of finding the animals of tracking them of like trying to see if you could find tracks and you know with turkeys you have turkey calls like the process of finding them and attracting them and watching them I loved that part but the like then like murdering them and watching them die part was not not for me and the whole point of this very long story is I never went hunting with my dad. Not once could he get me to go. And it wasn't until I was older, I had moved to New York and a friend of mine who was vegetarian, I wasn't really that opinionated on the matter, but he knew that I grew up on a pig farm. So he loved to try to like have conversations with me about it. And again, I didn't really 
I wasn't passionate about it at that time. Um, so I would just poke him. I'd just get him as worked up as possible. I'd just play devil's advocate. And he dared me to do, PETA had this like 30 day challenge where you could like request this informational packet about with recipes and why you should consider going vegetarian and, and whatnot. And I was like, okay, yeah, he dared me to do it. I was like, sure, I can go 30 days without meat. Um, and so I started it and I mean, I think the first thing was I immediately noticed that I didn't really miss meat. I, the meat that I missed was a gross, was like the bad meat, like chicken nuggets. That's something that I missed, <laughs> um, like things like that. Um, and then I started, you know, doing more research because I was like, well, I want to be healthy about this. Like, I want to make sure that I'm not missing something. <clears throat> and the more and more research I did, the more I slowly realized, I was like, I have been a little hippie vegetarian since I was a little kid. I just didn't know it because I grew up, grew up on a pig farm and it was never presented to me as an option. But suddenly um, I, I just kind of realized that that's, that's what works for me. So I started vegetarian. I was probably 24, 25-ish. Um, and then when I moved to LA at 30, I went vegan. Um, and the last couple of years, I've been a little more lax, letting some, uh, some dairy and whatnot slip into my, my diet. Um, I mean, I, there's, there's nothing, uh, what's the saying? Um, uh, how do you know somebody's vegan? Because they told you in the first three minutes that they met you, uh, or 30 seconds, I don't know, something like that. There's some saying like that. No, there's nothing anybody hates worse than an obnoxious vegan. So I, I try to be chill about it. I think everything we've talked about is, is relevant. I think it's all positive. I think it's, for me, I just want like, you know, having been, I've, I've always been a very, um, maybe borderline empath. Um, that's kind of caused me like a lot of emotional stress because I feel things so deeply. Um, and I've learned now as I, as I get older, like how to turn that into something positive. And that's basically what this podcast is. Like, I just, you know, um, elite runners aren't listening to my podcast. Um, but the people who really need to feel like they belong, who really maybe, this conversation has helped someone put on sneakers and go out today, you know, like not that we're live or whenever it goes live, um, you know, and that's, that's the goal. And who knows what, whose mindset we have shifted just by talking about different important aspects of life um, and they can go out and have a better run. Well, and there's a lot of us out there. I mean, that's where the idea for the film came from. I told you, you know, when I was first thinking about 100 Miler, I dove into every book, every film I could find. I watched them all multiple times and I loved them all. They're all so good. And like stories of these, you know, elite runners just achieving amazing things is so fascinating. But there were no six foot two husky ginger lumberjacks in those films running those hundred milers. Those were not, I did not see me at those starting lines. I did not, yeah. I did not know if it was even possible. And so that was an initial impetus for the film. And then the second we released the film and we started doing screenings, uh, I immediately knew I was spot on because people were just coming out of the woodwork with the same message. Like, oh, I, it, I, I didn't know that I could do this or I thought I was the only one or it's so interesting to see your story because I can't keep up with the ultra runners, you know, the, the, the elite ultra runners. And so there's a lot of people out there who are in the same boat as us. And I'm so glad to see so much more representation and content and media out there for that part of the community. You know, the Murnovator, I am Shantae, 300 pounds and running. There are so yes. many people in this space now who are giving people an example of what it looks like to be uh, successful, healthy, unconventional runner. And it was beautiful to see him on uh, on the cover of Runner's World. Yeah, and uh, I am Shantae. Like she did some stuff on the. Did you see her post a couple of days ago? Um, uh, there were some advertisements on the subways in New York. Uh, she did yeah. a campaign for. I can't remember the name now, but um, so much stuff like that. So like it's it's changing and it's changing quickly. So we'll yes. just keep 
keep picking up steam until we get to critical mass so that the running community can keep their uh, their funky inclusive street cred. I I agree. And you know, it's no it's no diss to the elite runners like but this is that's their job. Like that's that's their career. Um but for the rest of us we can we can choose to leave and we can choose to join. Um and I just hope that more people feel comfortable in making the choice to join. 100%. Get out there. Do it. Well, thank you so much for taking the time. Um you know, yeah, one thing one thing about uh, talking to different people every week in the running community, I mean, for me, it's almost like cathartic, therapeutic to to talk to different people and uh, make friends. Like, I feel like we're friends now. <laughs> we are. It's official. <laughs> when are you coming to Utah? <laughs> oh, I would love to. I would love to go to Utah. I hope you enjoyed that conversation as much as I did. I had a lot of fun chatting with Jeffrey. Links to where you can watch Once is Enough are in the show notes, as well as links to Jeffrey's site and his social media pages. As always, thank you for listening. If you like what you hear, let me know. Want to chat with me for the show? I would love to talk to you. Just email me at runningonoptimism at gmail.com. Hope to hear from you soon.